Our next speaker is Alexander Cullen. Alex is a human geography PhD student at Melbourne University. He likes long walks on the beach, romantic David Schwimmer movies, and uncomfortable silences. You can follow him on Twitter at Alex A. Cullen. Ladies and gentlemen, Alex. Thank you for that introduction. Um, as said, I am a geographer and I'm a human geographer at Melbourne University. And as a human geographer, one of the roles that we take on is being a social scientist, which means we're quite interested in scientific discovery, but also very interested in the social components of how power relations influence scientific application. So with that in mind, I thought I'd reflect a little bit on the idea of technological innovation and inherent values in the idea that science is never really bad nor good, but it is the application of it which makes it bad nor good or good. So in doing a little bit of research for this talk, I thought I'd look through and try and find some studies um, that might have shed some interesting light on the idea of this particular talk that I'm going to give. So here, just to start off, is a few that I came along with. Uh, at the moment, science is looking to see what a monkey's voice sounds like on helium. Um, it's a soprano. They've also asked, will a tortoise yawn if you yawn in front of it? No. Will a turkey have sex with a severed head on a stick? Yes, yeah. Uh, what happens if you give an elephant LSD? It dies. <laughs> and most importantly, can you fill out an insurance form correctly when you, the plane that you are flying on is crashing? The answer, surprisingly, is not very well. But instead of looking at these particular studies, I thought I would reflect tonight on a person that I think has drastically altered the social geographies of the last half of the 20th century. And arguably, just so much more than anybody else. But perhaps not in the way that they envisioned. This particular person was a prolific inventor. He had 165 patents to his name. He also uh, created a small nuclear fusion device. And he had his first invention at 13. But his most famous invention is the image dissector. Ostensibly what would become the first television. I'm talking about Philo Farnsworth. Now, the man was born in Utah in 1906 in a log cabin. No electricity, no running water. But before he got to his teens, the family moved to Idaho and they moved into a new house. And now this house had modern wiring, which was a little bit of a, a revelation for young Philo. Um, he was elated with it, and he studied the intricacies of the system while also devouring popular scientific mechanical magazines of the time. Before he even had re uh, reached teenager years, he had converted his mother's hand-powered hand -powered washing machine into an electrical one using nothing more than wiring and a burnt-out motor that he'd found out around the farm. At 13, he invented a magnetised car lock for a magazine competition and came first. He won himself $25 and he bought himself a pair of pants. 
But not to rest on his laurels. At 14, as a high school student, he theorized the basic principles of the electronic television. This came about while plowing the family's potato field. He envisioned the straight dirt rows as a template for the transmission of images on a screen. Now, television experiments were going on throughout the world at the time, but they involved the use of scanning discs or mechanical means for transmitting and receiving pictures. They weren't terribly successful. But he thought by breaking down images into parallel lines of light, they could be captured and transmitted as electrons before being reassembled on another screen. And this could be done using a photoelectric cell and a cathode ray tube. Now, he was excited by this, and he diagrammed this theory across numerous chalkboards for his chemistry teacher, showing him that you could focus an image to be transmitted onto the photoelectric surface in the vacuum tube. And if this was done under proper control, each point of the image would give off a flow of electrons representing the strength of the light focused on it. And then by this simple device, he thought you could build up within the vacuum tube an electron image which would correspond exactly with the picture image focused on the surface. Quite the revelation at the time. So with this idea in mind, in between university studies and working for the railroad, he finally raised enough capital to move to California and with the help of backers, begin research work on a prototype of what he called the image dissector. Now, at 19, in 1927, he filed patent for the image dissector at the uh, young age of 21. I don't know what you guys were doing at age 21, but I wasn't inventing a television. <laughs> um, he managed to get a working model. And then in 1928, his system was sufficient enough for a press demonstration. And the urban legend goes that his backers demanded how they would receive money for his invention. So his first image shown was a dollar sign. In 1929, he removed the motor component and made the first proper electronic television and transmitted with it the first human live image. Now, this particular time, particularly in America's history, radio was the most important media form at that time and the most lucrative. It was the most popular in American living rooms and the company that dominated it was RCA. They sold a lot of televisions, but they also had a lot of interest in broadcasting stations. And they didn't want to be threatened by this new invention, or at least they wanted in on the ground floor. So the next year, in 1930, another television inventor, Zwarkin, he came to visit Farnsworth in his workshop. And he was very, very impressed. In fact, he was stunned by what Farnsworth was doing. So he took that idea of that design and he attempted to replicate it in his research lab in Westinghouse. But he just couldn't get it to work. But the next year, he moved to RCA. And RCA, after talking to him, could see the potential. And they offered to buy the Farnsworth patent for $100,000 and the condition that he become an employee. Now, Farnsworth was his own man. He said no. He wanted his own company. But RCA didn't like that. So RCA acquired a more feeble patent by Zwarkin from 1923 that ostensibly didn't even work. And they used this to file patent interference. Now, litigation slowed down any production and research on the Farnsworth model. 
it just crippled the company financially and eventually crippled him psychically and he had a nervous breakdown. This was so bad that in 1933, he had to sever ties with his company, which not being an ego man, he'd called Filco. And he returned to his lab. But there was a ray of light. In 1935, the patent office ruled in Farnsworth's favor. But before he could begin production on anything, RCA filed a subsequent appeal and further slowed down any kind of development. But they began manufacturing their own television anyway. So he decided to go overseas. And in 1936, he took the image dissector um, to Berlin, where it was used to broadcast the Olympics. And on the side, just because he got a little bit bored, he decided to develop a process for sterilizing milk with radio waves. And he invented a beam for ships that would penetrate fog. Finally, in 1938, he decided to establish a new company, not using his first name this time. He called it Farnsworth. And the next year, after a decade-long legal battle with RCA, RCA finally conceded to a $1 million licensing agreement for the patent. Now, with this, RCA was finally able to legally and properly sell electronic televisions, and they just spread across the US. But not to rest on his laurels then, no. He kept inventing. So for the next 20 years, he invented the early warning signal, a submarine detection advice, radar calibration, an infrared telescope, and as well as the semi-functioning nuclear fusion reactor. However, when his company terminated his expensive fusion reactor project, he moved back to Utah and he mortgaged himself to the hilt taking out a life insurance just to keep the project running. But the financial backing that he sought for this, it never arrived. And the banks and the IRS shut his laboratory down for outstanding loans and unpaid tax. He turned to drink, he turned to depression, and he died from pneumonia. But he will always be remembered for creating the first electronic television. And he was thrilled at the times of the possibility of what it could do and how it might advance humanity. His wife recalled that he was in constant discussion of the television's potential. He saw the television would allow people to learn about each other. He felt that if you could learn how other people live, world problems would be settled around the conference table instead of bloody battlefields. He thought that everyone in the world would be educated. This was the dawn of free education. And through television, people could have intellectual entertainment, sporting news, cutting-edge news discussion. But instead, in the last 25 years of his life, he lived to see The Gong Show, <laughs> Gilligan's Island, Mr. Ed, and a litany of other IQ-lowering media productions dominate the television landscape, rendering what, uh, what the FCC chairman in 1961 called a vast wasteland. Philo was so disgusted and distraught by what his invention was used for, his son, Kent, described his father feeling that he had created some kind of monster, a way for people to waste a lot of their lives. And he summarized this attitude as, there's nothing worthwhile on it, and we are not going to watch it in this house. I don't want it part of your intellectual diet. So considering the popularity of just critically intellectual reality TV shows that 
dominate our airwaves today, such as Real Housewives and Jerry Springer and Big Brother, or cutting-edge discursive comedy such as Two and a Half Men, perhaps it's best he died when he did. The lesson, as always, is that scientific knowledge in itself is never bad nor good. It is the potential for application and the power to dictate its use that imbues value into that technology. So, although you might think injecting an elephant with LSD might have some strong potential outcomes to benefit humankind, critical social evaluation is always welcomed. Thank you.